Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, the conversation I have today is taking place here at Beeson during our Reformation Heritage Lectures. You know, Beeson is evangelical and ecumenical. We are confessional and reformational. And especially during this week, we honor the great heritage of the Protestant Reformation. And we're honored to have as our lecturer this week, the Reverend Dr. Sarah Henlicky Wilson. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, Sarah. Thank you. It is a delight to be here. Now, we have Lutherans on our faculty. We've met Lutherans before you, but uh, tell us how you became a Lutheran and what it means to you to be a Lutheran. Well, I became a Lutheran on July 4th, 1976, when I was baptized. Sheer coincidence that it happened to be the 200th birthday of America Uh. as well. Uh, The heritage behind it, of course, is that my parents were Lutherans. Their parents were Lutherans. As far as I know, all the way back to the Reformation, we were Danish Jews. German and Slovak Lutherans, except we just discovered a little pocket of Mennonites somewhere okay. in the Canadian family. But other than that, we're uh, we're solid Lutheran. Now, as a young lady, a uh, young woman, did you learn the Luther Catechism? I did. I did. Even before I went through confirmation class, my parents taught it to me. Wow. So you were really formed in this deeply uh, reformational tradition that stems from Martin Luther, includes a lot of other people along the way. And so we, you're speaking this week. I might ask you to give us a little preview of your lectures, uh, Soundings in Lutheran Spirituality. And you're focusing on songs, sinners, and saints. What is that about? Well, obviously, the alliteration is the major uh, driving factor there. Um, no, I, because the uh, topic is Reformation heritage, I was trying to think how I would like to present something from the Lutheran tradition to the Beeson students. And I think many people have the idea that Lutheran and spirituality are somehow at odds with each other. Um, but I experienced from my own life, but also from my research, that there was always a devotional, pious spirituality, we would say today, a result and impact of Lutheran theology. And I really wanted to explore how those two fit together, what it would actually mean in one's devotional life to come from a Lutheran doctrinal background. So today in chapel, I talked about um, four Lutheran hymns and the role that hymnody had, especially in making the new Reformation teaching stick in the hearts of the people and get them committed to it. And the ways it affected the genre of Lutheran hymns and the particular topics they were interested in. And then next two days, I'm talking about sinners and saints, which, of course, you'll recognize from uh, Luther's famous Simul Justus et Peccator, at the same time justified in a sinner, often shortened to sinner and saint at the same time. Um, so I have to admit, and for the sake of the alliteration, I called the second one sinners, but it's really more about baptism. Mm-hmm. But what I'm trying to uh, get the idea across is that baptism is spirituality for sinners, particularly, mm-hmm. and uh, Luther's interesting Christology that under- undergirds that relating back to sinners. So the connection will be made there. And finally, on the the third lecture will be about saints. And this is where I venture into some more exploratory um, area 
by talking about what it might mean to re um, reassess and recapture the hagiographical practice of the early and medieval church, interpreted in an evangelical key, of course. But I think that they were profoundly right about our need to relate to people before us, real specific human beings, not just the church in general, but that the church has always been comprised of specific individuals who have been called by God by name and have responded in faith. And I think that due to the confessional competition that arose in the terrible political situation in the 16th century, Lutherans finally closed off that option. And I am trying to open it up again. Good for you. And while I'm thinking about it, let me just mention that all three of Dr. Sarah Henlicky Wilson's lectures given this week at Beeson are available through our website at the online media store. So you can go there and purchase them and enjoy them for yourself. Uh, the wonderful uh, introduction uh, to this phase of the Reformation we don't always hear about in the way you're giving it. I want to ask you a question. You're talking about Lutheran spirituality. Uh, I remember hearing some debates among Lutherans about pietism, and uh, some were for it and some were against it. And so there is this tradition in Lutheranism, sort of Lutheran orthodoxy versus Lutheran pietism. How does that factor into what you're doing with Lutheran spirituality? Sure. Can I ask if the people you heard talking about it were Americans or Europeans? They were Americans. That makes a big difference. <laughs> yeah, I would say that from what I understand, now I did not grow up in a pietist background, um, but I also didn't grow up in an anti-pietist background. It was sort of neutral territory, and I came to it as a scholar not as a participating party. It seems to me, from what I glean from others who have a closer connection to it, that by the time it got to America and some generations had passed, it had kind of degenerated. I've heard it called decadent pietism. Mm. Um, even theorized that this pietism in some way set the ground for a move towards what we would now call liberal Protestantism among certain kind of Lutherans, um, a kind of pietism that was extremely isolationist, individualistic, refused to take responsibility for social concerns, um, very much no drink and no dance and no card play and kind of stuff um, that was essentially at odds with the, um, I would say, deeper Lutheran understanding that discernment is necessary in every case rather than creating a kind of um, canon or behavioral law for Christian life. Um, so you tend to get a more negative read on pietism, Lutheran pietism in America than you would in Europe. But where I live, I'm just across the Rhine from from the Württemberg and Baden areas of Germany. And they are among the most living churches of the German Lutheran church overall because they're pietists. Mm. And they still have their little ecclesiola that meets together lay groups. Um, and they're the ones who are committed. They're in the state uh, church still. Mm -hmm. um, they're very much a part of the broader life. But that has kept the state church going in other places where it has virtually died out. A few years ago, I visited Tübingen, and I visited there the Bingle House. Exactly, exactly. Which is what you're talking about, because it's very much out of that pietist tradition. They train pastors, mm -hmm. but with a strong sense of piety, spirituality, prayer, the life of devotion. Right. Very much a part of what they're doing. 
What you see in the sort of historical unfolding of Lutheranism is a tendency for the subjective and the objective uh, aspects to get divorced from each other. So at its worst, pietism becomes purely subjective. It becomes primarily about my emotions, my assurance of faith, my appropriation of Jesus. And the objective fact of Christ's saving work for us gets obscured or is simply irrelevant. And on the Orthodox, Lutheran Orthodox side, it becomes purely a matter of doctrinal articulation, um, getting it right, um, even hostile to emotions because it clouds yeah. the pure objectivity. Now, those are caricatures, and they're when those two movements are at their worst. Yeah. Um, when they can be joined together, they much more successfully represent the absolute unity those two were for Luther himself. Yeah. But as we all know, as, as time unfolds, it's harder to hold to the original vision. False choices get posed and then taken, and things can s- separate from each other that ought not be separated. One of the things I like about you is uh, you are a Lutheran. You're a real Lutheran. You're not, a, you're not ashamed <laughs> of it. I mean, you know, no. uh, you are who you are, and you say that very well and from your heart. But you also are very interested in the unity of the body of Christ, in what we call ecumenism. In fact, you are a professor at the Institute for Ecumenical Research in Strasbourg in France, very close to Germany. So uh, tell us a little bit about ecumenism and maybe about the institute at which you're uh, working now. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I would say that it is somewhat counterintuitive to a lot of people that you can be committed to a particular dogmatic tradition and be an ecumenist at the same time. And to tell you the truth, I was not convinced it was possible to be both before I went to work at the Institute. Um, again, to overgeneralize a bit, but my impression before I went to work there was that people who were really into ecumenism had no real convictions. It was kind of a, why can't we all get along? And this isn't really important. And if we just feed the hungry, then everything will take care of itself. Um, but the people who were really committed often to the dogmatic tradition, whether they were Lutherans or Catholic or something else, there was just this kind of edge of hostility and an uncharitable reading of other groups' doctrines that just, you know, I was committed enough to the truth that it really bothered me that we couldn't take the time to get them right. Even if we disagreed with them, we should still be getting them right. And so these two things kind of sat uneasily with me. How do you not go down either of these paths? Um, and when I went to the Institute for my interview, I was immediately impressed by my colleagues that this was, neither of these were options for them. Mm. That unity is anchored in both truth and love. You don't choose truth over love. You don't choose love over truth. And mm. all these together are what lead to unity under the guidance of the whole Spirit. So to back up, um, our institute, which is a Lutheran institute, despite being one of ecumenical research, was founded exactly 50 years ago. We had a big birthday celebration this year. Um, That was during the time of the Second Vatican Council coming to a close. Um, After 50 years of stridently rejecting ecumenism, suddenly the Catholic Church was open to it, in fact, committed to it, absolutely irrevocably committed to it. So within the Lutheran worlds, we had this Lutheran World Federation that had been around for about 15 years. It was founded in 1947, a year before the World Council of Churches. And there was an immediate sense of this was history making. Mm -hmm. This was changing everything, and we needed to be prepared to respond to it. So some bishops with great foresight found some money, established a foundation, and that um, led to the opening of the Institute in April of 1965. So the idea was that it would be affiliated with the Lutheran World Federation um, and active in its work, especially in international bilateral dialogues, but it would be um, independent all the same, 
And it would be primarily academic in orientation. It would not be the diplomacy office per se um, or the communion office, which the Geneva branch of the Lutheran World Federation does. Um, so this uh, institute was founded and immediately got to work with the Catholics. It was one of the very first bilateral dialogues to be established. I would say to date, no bilateral dialogue in the world has exceeded the Lutheran Catholic dialogue in depth, precision, wide rangingness. And consequence, um, it led finally in 1999 to the signing of the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification, which is the only dogmatically binding document the Catholic Church has ever signed together with a Protestant church. Yeah. So whether they like it or not, now Catholics <laughs> are, are permanently tied to this commitment to share yeah. a teaching on justification with Lutherans. But in addition to that, our house has seen major advances in Lutheran Reformed relations. Um, Americans are often astonished to hear it, but in Europe, virtually all the Lutheran Reformed churches have full altar and pulpit fellowship with each other. Mm. And enormous numbers of brethren, Moravians, Methodists, Waldensians, United are part of that agreement as well. It's now called the Community of Protestant Churches in Europe. We also were instrumental in the Mennonite apology that took place in 2010. Tell us a little bit about that. That's a fascinating aspect of I think humanism. this is one of the most important things that has ever happened, honestly. Um, what had happened is that in 1983, it, no, excuse me, in 1980 was the 450th anniversary of the Augsburg Confession. And to celebrate, Lutherans invited a bunch of ecumenical friends to attend the festivities, including Mennonites, little realizing that Mennonites were the heirs of the Anabaptists who are condemned in several articles of the Augsburg Confession. Well, that was very embarrassing when it was finally realized. So there were three national dialogues that quickly arose in Germany, France, and the United States to try to um, deal with that faux pas and establish um, ecumenical relations with Mennonites. The Lutheran World Federation then realized it needed to have an international dialogue with the um, Mennonite World Conference, which then began. Lutherans, being typically Lutheran, immediately wanted to get into doctrinal questions, especially about baptism. The Mennonites were having a really hard time going there because they said, but, you know, you killed some of us over this issue, and now you just want to talk about it around a table? And the Lutherans were like, what? We didn't. No, no, we didn't really. And they're like, yes, you did. So that finally the decision was made, let's back up and find out what really happened. And so the decision was made to write a joint history of Lutheran and Anabaptist relations in the 16th century that both parties would say, yes, this is what happened. This is an accurate representation. So what Lutherans found out is that, in fact, they were responsible for about 100 of the approximately 5,000 executions of Anabaptists in the 16th century. So a small percentage, but let's say 100 too many overall. Mm. Um, the Mennonites were quite startled to realize it was only 100 out of 5,000. They thought we had several thousand <laughs> um, executions on our hands. Um, but uh, we also found cases where people like Luther and Melanchthon themselves defended the execution of Mennonites uh, on theological grounds, um, contrary to their initial impulses against religious violence. So finally, the decision was made by the Lutherans that it wasn't enough simply to tell the 
history, we needed to actually apologize for it. So this went to the LWF Council. There was a unanimous vote in favor in the year 2010 at the LWF Assembly, which took place in Stuttgart, home of reformer Johannes Brentz, who was one of the few Lutherans who was absolutely opposed to execution of yeah. Anabaptists. So that was a very nice and There was a service of reconciliation, circle. a washing of feet, I think. Yes, and- after, after the vote was taken, the Mennonites actually came prepared. They'd known this was coming, and they d- declared their full forgiveness and pardon to the Lutherans and said, uh, we believe God forgives you too, and we have to start a new chapter in our history. And it was followed by the service of reconciliation. You know, Pope John Paul II, uh, a blessed memory, uh, taught us a phrase in his great encyclical, Uranum Sent, about the reconciliation of memories. Mm, mm-hmm. And it seems to me that's an example, what you all have done, the Lutherans and Mennonites, uh, difficult memories, uh, painful, uh, but to talk about it, to pray together about it, and to come to some sense of reconciliation in Christ about it is a part of the reconciliation of memories that a lot of us need, I think, to be involved in. I think that what made this one so unique is that it was in detail. It wasn't a mistakes were made mm. kind of confession. It was a, these are the people we killed and when we did it and how we justified it. And I've really come to think that bilateral dialogues in the past 50 years have come so far in showing us how close we are doctrinally, and that the differences are ones we can live with. But we still aren't getting anywhere with unity. I think the issue is that we have not been fully open about our bad history to, with each mm-hmm. other. And I think this Mennonite thing will be seen as the sparrow that announces the coming yeah. of spring. And I would like to see more of these kinds of detailed histories and confessions follow. Tell us a little bit about your family, Sarah. I know your husband, Andrew, I met uh, some years ago when I was in, in Strasbourg. You have a son, Ezekiel. Um, and I particularly want you to talk about this amazing adventure, I don't know what else to call it, <laughs> that you and Andrew had of walking all the way from Erfurt in Germany, where Luther was a student and a monk at one time in his life, all the way to Rome on your feet, right? On our feet, <laughs> yes. Here I walk. Here I walk, yes. What is that? Well, when we were still graduate students at Princeton Seminary, we, you know, being Luther enthusiasts, we saw this 500th anniversary of his famous pilgrimage to Rome was coming up. And, you know, everybody who, you know, knows the Luther story knows that he went to Rome at one time, long before the Reformation started, and lots of myths have accrued around it, as we discovered later. Like, that's where the Reformation really began. Luther was shocked by what he saw. You know, he came home determined to make a clean break. Well, none of it's actually true. I mean, it was seven years later that the 95 Theses came along, and German priests at the time knew that Italian priests were totally corrupt. So nothing he saw there really (laughs) would have surprised him in the slightest. But we still thought, wouldn't it be neat to retrace his steps? You know, what's out there? What do we know about where he went? But we had no realistic way of making it happen. Until in late 2008, I got a job in Europe, which put us a lot closer to both the beginning and the ending points of Luther's journey. Um, So after maybe a year at the Institute, I began to think, you know, we could do this pilgrimage. um, And instead of doing it in a confessionally hostile way, here's how Luther became the reformer who took down the Catholic Church, which I no longer could really buy as an ideology anyway. I began to see this is the kind of thing that will intrigue people and give us an opening to talk to them about how far Catholic-Lutheran relations have come. And so my um, colleagues and the board were incredibly supportive, and they said,
said, go for it. And it helped that social media was just taking mm. off. I mean, in 2005, five years earlier, it would have been hard to do. But in 2010, we already had Facebook and Twitter. We had blogs. So you so blogged about this as you We as blogged you walked. every day, <laughs> yep, sent out tweets and the whole thing. And we had, you know, hundreds of people following our, our trek every day and looking at the photos that my husband took. And you told me Andrew was, was writing a book that will encapsulate some of this experience. He is, yes. It's going to be published by Baker Brazos, probably in early 2017, also to be called Here I Walk. Great. Uh, in honor of our play on Luther's famous words, Here I Stand. I think that's just a fabulous idea. And I look forward to seeing that book as well. You know, uh, recently in Rome, a certain square was named after Martin Luther. Amazing, isn't it? Isn't that something? Yes. So when you got to Rome, did you? How did, how did you finish the trip? Did you pray? Did you march <laughs> around the walls expecting them to fall like Joshua? What happened? Well, you know, when we left Air Force, we left in the company of a Catholic friend and a Lutheran friend. And when we arrived in Rome, we were greeted by a Catholic friend and a Lutheran friend. We decided early on we didn't want to stage some sort of audience with the Pope or make any plea to remove the bull of excommunication or anything like that. We really wanted it to be... Um, a lay grassroots oriented thing to encourage people to learn about um, how far reconciliation has come between our communities to pray, to make it their own work rather than appealing to any authority, Lutheran or Catholic, to solve the problem for us. Um, but it is true that when we came into Rome, we, of course, stopped at St. Peter's, but our final southernmost point was St. Paul's outside the walls. And, you know, it was important to us to think, again, of Peter and Paul, you know, the two obviously symbolically aligned with Catholicism and Lutheranism or Protestantism, respectively. Um, to visit both of those apostles. We saw the remains of Peter. Um, we saw what may or may not be the remains of Paul and St. Paul's outside the walls. These two apostles had very, very bitter arguments, but they were still together, martyrs for Christ in the city of Rome. And we thought that reality was bigger than um, the disagreement that they had in their time. And that was symbolically powerful for what we were trying to do, too. Wonderful. I want to ask you one more thing. Um, you and your colleague in Strasbourg, Professor Theo Dieter, have taught a seminar together in Wittenberg for Lutheran pastors, I think. What are you doing there? Tell us about that. Sure. Again, this was part of the build-up to the uh, 95 Theses anniversary in 2017, sort of billed as the anniversary of the Reformation or the anniversary of the outbreak or start of the Reformation. Um, yeah, so the, the German Lutheran churches and the Lutheran World Federation were looking for ways to build global fellowship. I mean, in some ways, that's the primary task of the Lutheran World Federation, simply to make connections between Lutherans around the world, in addition to its enormously vast um, diaconal work, which is another topic, but a wonderful one. Um, and so the idea was to have a seminar in Wittenberg every year where about 20 pastors from all over the world would be brought together. It's very deliberately divided. Half of them are from what we call the global south and the other half from the global north or North Atlantic maybe is more accurate. And um, to read Luther together and discuss it and let the questions and friendship flow naturally. Um, when Teo and I started doing this, we were a little nervous because we both are passionate admirers of Luther. But we know enough about the explosion of world Christianity really to ask ourselves, does Luther work outside of European culture or a European-derived culture like uh, we have in North America? Um, does he really work 
outside the old Christendom. And I would have to say our fears were allayed and our hopes were fulfilled beyond our wildest dreams. I would say overwhelmingly, it's the students from Africa and Asia who respond to Luther like, this is the man we've been waiting for who is solving our problems. <laughs> How about that? He really, really helps yeah. them. Um, I would say the Europeans are the slowest to come on board. I don't know if that's excessive familiarity with Luther or being inoculated against his name. Usually it's by the end there begins to be a little crack in the surface and some Luther starts to get through. Um, but it's, of course, completely the opposite of what you would expect. Um, it was so popular that they've added now a March edition. So it's happening twice a year. I only teach the November edition. But I've had pastors from Senegal, um, a Lutheran convert uh, from Islam, who said that um, he read the Bible as a teenager and discovered that while the Quran was a book about how you save yourself, the Bible is a book about how God saves you. And that's what made him a Christian. I've had a pastor from Greenland where she has to buy all of her communion wine at once because most of the year it's frozen in and nothing can get through to her. <laughs> Pastors from tiny communities in Colombia, um, from the enormous Lutheran churches in Indonesia. It's just, it's... It's amazing to see how Christianity and Lutheranism have moved all over the world and taken on all of these new forms and cultures, and yet how we can come together in Luther's city and be reading something like The Freedom of a Christian, and it just makes such deep sense. Great. One more question. If you're, you're speaking to someone, Sarah, who's interested in Luther, they've heard about Luther, they've never really read Luther, where should they start? I would say if you have, you know, basic understanding of the gospel and the Bible, go to the large catechism. Mm. The large catechism is what Luther wrote for pastors to assist them in their teaching, catechesis, and preaching. Um, it's an interpretation of the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the sacraments. It's beautiful. It is not polemical. Mm. It's Luther at his best really being a passionate teacher of the good news. Um, his reflections always amaze me every time I read them. They're They're really... They're really life-giving. Yeah. I would say that would be the best place to start. And you've already mentioned the freedom of the Christian. That's also a very that famous – That should be number two. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I've been speaking today to the Reverend Dr. Sarah Henlicky wilson She is an assistant research professor with the Institute for Ecumenical Research in Strasbourg, France. She's giving our Reformation Heritage Lectures here at Beeson Divinity School. It's been a delight to have you on this podcast. I look forward to hearing more from you. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.